Well, this morning we come to the, uh, to the last of the Beatitudes, which is a section that Jesus used to open up his Sermon on the Mount, a section that describes people who are with Jesus. What does the lifestyle of the kingdom look like? What kind of citizens inhabit this country? What makes them stand out in the world? What makes them different from other people? So those are the kind of questions Jesus has been trying to answer through these pithy statements. And we come to the last one this morning. All along, as Jesus has been building this portrait, we've been surprised by the kind of things he points out. When you pick a team on the sand lot, you start with the tallest kids, with the fastest kids, the strongest kids, with the most skilled and experienced kids. You want to build a team of winners, not losers. That never worked out very well for me in my sandlot days. But that's the way of the world, right? Not Jesus. Not in this kingdom. Jesus started with the poor in spirit, those who didn't have self-confidence. He started not with those who were happy-go-lucky, always ready with a joke, but with the mourners. Those who live life in grief over their sin and over the brokenness of the world. He started not with those who were satisfied, but those who were hungry. He wasn't looking for winners who dominate and lord it over the weak, but for those who show mercy, those who seek peace, those who want God's presence more than they want power or fame or stuff. It's a clear and consistent picture that Jesus has been drawing for us. Every one of these Beatitudes has been reinforcing that same message. In this kingdom, nothing is what you would expect. And the last Beatitude that we come to this morning fits that picture perfectly. He wraps up his picture of those who are with him with a claim that is just as surprising as all those that went before, if not even a little bit more so. I'm going to ask you now to stand with me in honor of God's word while I read from Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. This is his word to us this morning. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is God's word. You can be seated. Blessed are the persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The good life, Jesus says, is the persecuted life. So there are two clear and simple implications for us from what Jesus has to say. Two really simple things that I want you to leave with this morning. As followers of Jesus, you should expect persecution. There's number one. And as followers of Jesus, you should welcome persecution. That's number two. You should expect persecution, and you should welcome persecution. Those are the two implications of Jesus' words. I want to I spend all of our time trying to unpack why that's the case. What is it that, should, that, that should, should make us expect to be persecuted? The first thing that's striking to me about what Jesus says, what he's saying here, is that if you're with him, 
you will be persecuted. When I hear persecution language in the Bible, I tend to jump to the really big, famous, obvious examples of persecution from church history. Think of the book of Acts and of Stephen, the first martyr who for his preaching about Jesus gets stoned to death. Or I think of Nero, the emperor, during the time that the church was expanding, when lots of Christians had, had, had converted in Rome. Uh, I, I think of Nero, his famous persecution in, in around A.D. 64, where he blamed the Christians for some of his own crimes and ended up persecuting them and, and actually killing many of them and even torching some of them to, to light the city for one of his parties. Or I think about, I think about those grisly ISIS propaganda videos that we've seen even in the last few months. When I think about persecution, that's where my mind goes. I don't know about yours. That's where mine goes. But what Jesus says here, he says as part of a set of Beatitudes. And one of the things we've been saying about these Beatitudes every week is that Jesus isn't describing, in these, in these eight Beatitudes, he isn't describing eight different kinds of people or eight different kinds of character qualities that some people will have. You know, maybe you'll have some who, some in the kingdom will be poor in spirit. Others will be great at showing mercy. Some will be hungry and thirsty for righteousness. And, and others will be really marked by mourning over sin. No, he's describing the same person. He's describing everyone who's with him. These eight traits will mark all citizens of his kingdom. So what he's saying when he when he adds persecution in there at the end of the list, what he's saying is the experience of persecution is as basic to being a Christian as being poor in spirit. It's as basic to being a Christian as mourning over sin. It's as basic as showing the kind of mercy to others that you've been shown. It's as basic as the pure heart that wants God's presence more than anything else in the world. Persecution is a basic Christian experience. That's what Jesus is saying. In fact, it's almost like he wanted to make it extra clear on this point. Because he breaks, did you notice this? He breaks from the pattern that he's used in the earlier Beatitudes. What we've been seeing is that there's this formula to every one of the statements. Blessed, pronouncement of blessing, a description of the person who's blessed, and then a reason that they're blessed, the good things that they can expect. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, but they shall be comforted, and so on. And then he gets to this last one, blessed are the persecuted, theirs is the kingdom of heaven, bookending the set, and then launches into two more verses to make sure it's clear what he means. And in those two verses, did you notice this? He switches from this general portrait of all Christians, this third person account. Blessed are those who are persecuted. He switches into second person and he makes it really personal. He makes it clear that he's talking about you. Blessed are you when others revile you, when you're slandered, when you're pursued, when others spread lies about you. He wants to make sure his hearers know this is what will happen to them. This is what, friends, this is what will happen to you if you're with Jesus. So why? I think the point is pretty clear. You should expect persecution if you want to be with Jesus. Why? When he says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, what he's really saying is, blessed are those who are persecuted because their lives look like these beatitudes. 
These Beatitudes have been describing for us what the righteous life looks like. Why would you be persecuted for making peace? Why would you be persecuted for showing mercy? For being poor in spirit? I think Jesus' words in verse 11 point us, it provides a really important clue. It points us to why persecution is a basic experience for Christians that everyone should expect that, that's inspired by righteousness like what he's described in these Beatitudes. Jesus, when he, when, he get, when he gets specific about what kind of persecutions you should expect, he doesn't start with the big ones that our minds go to. He doesn't start with the beheadings, with the burnings at stake, with the... The, 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 the concentration camps. He doesn't start there. He says people will revile you. They'll spread lies about you. His focus is on what will be said about you. His focus is on the takedown to your reputation. On your banishment. Your exclusion from polite society. His focus is on people putting you out and putting you down because your life reflects his character. To be with Jesus is to be excluded from the world. I think if we, if we really meditate on that for a minute here, it, makes a, it make, starts to make more sense why these traits, these these characteristics of righteousness always lead to some sort of verbal abuse, of exclusion from those who don't share your traits. Think about it this way. Isn't it always a little bit threatening, at least a little bit threatening, to be around somebody who makes different choices that you, than you do? Maybe people who, who eat differently on purpose who avoid the foods that you like best or vice versa on purpose, who parent their kids differently than you do on purpose, who dress differently than you do and not because they lack your sense of style but because they really think their way is better. Isn't it especially threatening when you feel like you're an outlier on their turf, on the turf where they're the the norm, when you realize you're kind of the only one? It's always a little bit threatening to be around people who make different choices than you do when their choices are really driven by deep conviction on purpose. That threat level rises to some sort of DEFCON level when the differences affect fundamental things about who we are, affect the biggest characteristics of our lives. When those differences aren't just stylistic or shallow, but central to who we are and how we live, then the threat becomes something that's got to be eliminated. So, to tease this out a little more, those who are poor in spirit, they may be a cause of shame, may even be seen as dangerous to those who believe higher self-esteem is the key to better mental health. Those who mourn over sin, those who see people choosing to live as if God doesn't exist and can't take it casually, 
those who can't join with others in celebrating what they believe God will condemn, they're always going to look antisocial. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, in other words, those whose lives are aimed mostly at honoring God, well, they're going to seem prudish and narrow-minded to those whose lives aim at more wealth, to those whose lives claim the right to define what they want from their sexual identity, for example. Or when peacemakers have to sit out a conversation at work where their co-workers are talking bad about someone who's left the room because what the peacemaker wants is to bring healing and reconciliation. That peacemaker, whether they like it or not, will probably cause their co-workers to feel judged. Maybe even attacked. When peacemakers try to empathize with the one who's not there, the ones doing the accusing are going to feel misunderstood. You could fill in the blank on these examples. The point is that that when the righteous stand out for their righteousness, people will need to defend their choices. People will need to discredit the competition. One or the other will be right. Coexistence is a bit of a pipe dream. When righteousness stands out, then it'll have to be discredited. Or those who stand against it won't stand at all. It's threatening. Are you ready for that? I think one of the really unfortunate things about the, uh, the, the comfort that Christians in, in America have been able to live with, one of the unfortunate things about a thing that on the whole is a really, really good thing, is that sometimes the pitch to people who aren't Christians comes off as a bit of a bait and switch. Sometimes the, the, the pitch is that you can become a Christian if you want to see your life really take off. Do you want more success in your work? Better relationships? Do you want more wealth? Do you want a life that's really blessed? Then, then come with us. This is where that happens. Sometimes, especially in places where a, a thicker layer of general Christianity is it, it, it spread out over the culture maybe even especially here in the South, sometimes the appeal is to become a Christian so that you can be included. But you've almost got to join up with Jesus if you expect to get ahead in life, if you expect to have professional opportunities, to have friendships, to have inclusion in the social clubs. Jesus, though, is saying, Jesus is saying, if you're really with me, if you're really with me, then what you can expect is for people to try to take you down. For people to revile you, to tell lies about you, to want to put you out of their communities. 
And if you're here this morning considering Christianity, you're not a Christian yet, but you're interested in what Jesus has to offer, then I want to make sure that the message here is really clear to you. There is a cost to following Jesus. There always has been. There always will be. And Jesus doesn't hide that. He doesn't try to sugarcoat it. If you want to be with Jesus, then you need to be ready to have others to have others push you back at the least, maybe try to put you down socially. If you're a Christian this morning, then I wonder how well what Jesus describes here as the norm for Christians, how well it reflects what your experience has been so far with Him. I heard a sermon on this passage recently. A pastor, pastor, I think, made a, a really important qualification. I think, it'd be un, I think it would be unwise of us to think that Jesus is saying, if you want to be with him, then the only response you ever get from people is hatred. That people are always going to think the worst of you. In fact, Jesus is going to say the opposite in the passage we're going to look at next week. Next week's passage, he talks about the importance of being salt and light. Salt that helps preserve the good of society. Light that bears good, clear witness. And then he says, he builds to, the, to this statement where he says, uh, that people will see your good works and they'll glorify your Father who's in heaven. So sometimes, just like with Jesus, when our lives start to look like Jesus' life, some people will be drawn in by that. Some people will, will, will see its beauty. They'll want it for themselves. That's always been one reaction to Jesus. We saw it in his own ministry. Many people flocked to him because they saw his beauty. That should happen with us too sometimes. But then on the other hand, Jesus is making it really clear that you should also expect people to dismiss you, to talk bad about you, slander you, to try to run you out. The point is, sometimes, like Jesus, should, your, your quality of life should be winsome to people. And sometimes, just like Jesus, your quality of life will be alienating to people. But always, your quality of life should get a rise out of people. One way or another, there should always be a reaction. So what's the reaction to you? If the reaction that people have to you and your faith is, seems like it's always alienating them, and especially if you feel in yourself a kind of maybe even a little sense of pride in being alienating to other people, then that's a sign that you're probably just obnoxious. And that you're actually not representing Jesus' peace, Jesus' mercy. If you're always winsome, and if, the only cir- if in all the circles that you run in, you tend to be affirmed, then chances are you're not distinctive enough. If you're, always getting alien, if you're always alienating people, you're probably just obnoxious. And that's not the kind of persecution that Jesus is talking about. He's talking about persecution for righteousness, Nate, not, for, not because of how obnoxious you are. If, if you're only ever drawing people in, you're only ever being affirmed by people, people are only ever celebrating you, well, then you're, you're probably not distinctive enough. And if you're not getting any reaction at all, 
if your life just basically blends in wherever you are, then it's probably a sign that you're not engaging. And that's never Jesus' model for being with his kingdom in the world. Jesus is describing here a kingdom that's different from any other place that you could be. It's always going to be a separate world from the world we're living in. But he's never talking about standing aloof from the worlds where you live in, about standing in judgment over the worlds that you live in, looking on those worlds with scorn. We're never to be isolated into a kind of hive of the like-minded, just buzzing about our issues while Rome burns around us. Jesus' model is always engagement. Persecution comes when the righteous engage their world righteously. If there's no reaction to you as a Christian, it could be that you're not engaging people around you as a Christian. I think his point is clear enough. When when people are righteous and engaging, when they look like these Beatitudes, and when they don't shrink back from standing for Jesus where they are, then people will oppose you. You should expect to be discredited and disowned. You should expect to be put down and put out of other communities. In other words, affiliation with Jesus is always going to mean a kind of homelessness here. It'll always mean exclusion from other ways to be. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. That's what you should expect if you want to be Jesus. But maybe the more surprising statement that Jesus makes here, even more surprising than that persecution is the norm for Christians in their experience, maybe the more surprising statement the takeaway that you've got to have if you want to get his full point is that as a follower of Jesus, you should welcome persecution. I think seeing persecution, what I tried to to show in this last point is that persecution, as Jesus is describing it, is a kind of exclusion. It's a kind of homelessness. It's to be looked at and labeled unworthy, unsafe, different, and dangerous. It's to be discredited and disowned. That's what verse 11 suggests. But seeing persecution as a kind of homelessness, I think, sets up our understanding of what Jesus says next in verse 12. It helps us understand why we're supposed to rejoice and to be glad. Persecution is to be run down and run out of the world. And then Jesus says, rejoice. What? It's painful to have people think low of you. It's painful. Words hurt. It's always painful to be excluded. Jesus says rejoice though. Be glad. Not despite this persecution, but because of it. When you're persecuted, because you're persecuted, be glad, he says. What's that about? Jesus gives us two reasons for the rejoicing. 
that he's calling for in verse 12. And I want to treat both of them together. Just look at it. Look at this. He gives us two fours. Rejoice and be glad. Why? Four. First, your reward is great in heaven. And then four. Second, this is how they treated the prophets who were before you. Rejoice because persecution shows you've got a reward in heaven. Another home. And persecution shows you've got another community. The community of the prophets. The ones who have stood for God and been isolated and attacked for it. You do have a home. If persecution looks like homelessness here, then persecution should cause us to rejoice and be glad because it points to another home, another place, another people where we really belong. I think that's Jesus' main point here. You may be banished from community here, but you have a people. You have a wonderful tradition of the faithful whose allegiance to God has meant hostility from others. And your exclusion from this world is a sign of your belonging to another world. Now, I think that's the pretty simple point Jesus is making. I think having that point land on us takes work. We've got to meditate on this promise for a while. Why should we rejoice and be glad when we're persecuted? Because it shows we've got a reward in heaven and we've got a place with God's people. We have a place, we have a people, we have a home. Persecution points us that way. Why is that such good news? I want to take a few minutes and just meditate on it. Think of yourself like a steak that needs to sit in a pan full of good marinade and just soak it all up. Promise is clear enough We need to engage our heads and our hearts with it. That's what we want to do for the next few minutes. The point is not going to get any more complicated than it it already has been. If you're with Jesus, you should welcome persecution because persecution is a sign that you have a home. Why is that good news? If you can't lock in on why it's good news, you won't be ready for persecution. That's what he's saying here, I think. That's the implication here. If If you're not locked in on the home, Jesus is promising to his own. The place in heaven and the people with the prophets and all those who have stood with God. If you can't lock in on why that home that's promised to you is good news, then you won't be ready to be excluded by communities around you. Why is it such good news? I think Jesus is appealing to desires in us that, that are in every one of us but that tend to get suppressed where we live in our particular time and place, especially if you're young, especially if you live in a city. The notion of home and people is a lot weaker than it used to be. We tend to celebrate mobility. We tend to give high school graduates that Dr. Seuss book about all the places that you'll go. We, we tend to see college as a, as a way to get out, as a way to rise up. And we celebrate reinvention. In America in particular, we love the fact that no one has to stay who they were. That your family of origin doesn't determine who you're going to be, what your life will be. You have an opportunity to change, to rise up. How often do you meet somebody who actually grew up in Nashville? It's rare, isn't it? And it's getting more and more rare all the time. I didn't grow up here. Feels like home now after 13 years almost, but didn't grow up here. 
The fact that we're so mobile, the fact that we like to redefine ourselves and to break loose of the peoples who would have given us identity makes it a little bit harder to connect with why Jesus points us here to give us hope in persecution. But we owe it to ourselves to think hard about it. There's a peace and a security that comes from a place that's yours. From a place that's familiar. From a place where you feel protected and safe, provided for. A place where you've got roots that can't be cut off. A place where you're welcome, where you're at home, where you know that you'll never be turned away. We may not stay where we grew up as often as folks used to 100 years ago, but surely you've at least experienced what it is to be traveling, maybe on a long trip in places that are very, very different from yours. You've felt what it is to get home. To leave that unfamiliar place, a place where you clearly stand out, a place that has customs and values that seem foreign to you, How sweet does home feel to you then? Jesus calls us to think of heaven like that. Of a reward in that place where we truly belong. And we know what it feels like to have a people that's ours. A people where we know we fit in. Where we know we're understood. Where we're joined by the people around us in the things that we love. and the things that we value. We know we share the things that are most important. There's a special kind of camaraderie even in shared experience. You know, the kind of camaraderie that you residents build with one another. Even across the country. It doesn't have to be a resident in your own program here at Vandy Hospital. There's a kind of camaraderie or kinship that I've noticed in how you guys think about each other's experience. Or, or if, you've, if you've ever run a marathon, there's a kind of kinship with others who have done it too. If you've served in the military, there's this kinship that binds soldiers to one another, especially those who have served in combat. Mothers who've survived childbirth share this instinct, this, this shared experience that's, that's sweet to them. You know what it is to have a people who get you. There's a sense of belonging that's powerful that offers security and helps you push through. Who doesn't want to belong to a place? Who doesn't want to belong to a people? Jesus is saying here that when you're persecuted, though it may hurt you emotionally and physically, though it may hurt you to be abused verbally and excluded, though it may hurt to be misunderstood and ridiculed and slandered and hated, rejoice. Because what this shows is that you belong in heaven. What this shows is that you belong to his people. To the prophets who've gone before you. That you're not the first to be mistreated for a life that won't conform. For a life that belongs to another king. You aren't the first to bring down the wrath of the powers that be. Because you stand against them. Jesus is calling us to think about the prophets and the faithful before us like that. Like a people with whom we have solidarity. People who who made it. Who remind us that we will too. That we're with them. 
He's saying we should welcome persecution because of what it says about us. Our hearts belong to that place. Our lives belong with that people. We do have a home. He's making the same point that an author would make to a community of persecuted Christians just one generation after Jesus spoke these words. The letter to the Hebrews later on in the New Testament was written by someone who had been trained or maybe even knew Jesus themselves, who would have been familiar with Jesus' promise that the people who were with him should expect to be persecuted, be put out of their communities. And now this writer is writing to his friends, uh, yet another generation of those who are following Jesus, who are following him in a world that's very different from the one Jesus came to build and who were experiencing the kind of hostility Jesus said they would. That's the pretext for Hebrews. And then in Hebrews 11, the author, we don't know his name, don't know exactly who he was, we know he must have been familiar with Jesus' teaching here because he basically does the same thing in Hebrews 11 that Jesus is doing here in Matthew 5. He points his friends to people in the past who've gone before them, who held on to the faith, who were faithful to God despite what it cost them. He reminds them of their hope, their confidence, of their experience, and tells them to go for it as part of a great tradition. I want to remind you, especially if, you haven't, if you're not familiar with this text, I want to point you to it. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 11. This is what the author says to his friends who were, who were being excluded, whose lives even were being threatened. He reminds them in this chapter of the history of the faithful. The people who obeyed God even though the cost was high. Who obeyed Him because their hearts were set on what God had promised them. On a treasure. An inheritance beyond the reach of death and decay and disappointment. I'm going to pick it up in verse 8 where he talks about Abraham. By faith, the author says, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. Abraham had been promised another home, different from the home that he had. And he went out, not knowing where he was even going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land. Does that sound familiar? Living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. Abraham lived in this world, homeless, because his heart belonged to the city to come, the one that had been promised to him. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. God is building a people. A people where they would belong. These all died in faith. Verse 13 not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. Does that sound familiar? For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of that land from which they'd gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. If they had wanted to make a home here, If that had been one of their priorities, they could have. That's a live option for you, friends. 
You can blend in if you want to. But as it is, verse 16, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Jumping down, verse 32, he, he, he runs out of time to, to, to go through all these name-by-name examples. What more shall I say, the author says. Time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Jamson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel, and the prophets, the same prophets that Jesus was talking about, the prophets who are your people, if you're with him who through faith conquered kingdoms and enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. That sounds great. I want to be part of that people. Then he changes course. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release. They could have gotten out. They chose not to so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking, just like Jesus said, and flogging, and chains, and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. They had no people. They had no home. Wandering about in deserts, and mountains, and in dens, and caves of the earth. No home, no place, no people. Then in chapter 12, the author takes a turn. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight, and the sin which clings so closely, And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. We are not alone. We have a people. They are witnesses to what we're called to do now. When Jesus made this appeal, when he told his followers to expect to be isolated, but to look ahead to their place, to look ahead to their people with the prophets, He had the prophets to appeal to. The author to Hebrews has Jesus. Remember who it is you belong to. Verse 2 of chapter 12 says, Look to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Ultimately, we should welcome persecution because when we're persecuted, we we reflect something of the beauty of our Savior. We show something of our kinship to Him. We show that we belong to His community. That our hearts are in the home He has made for us. Our solidarity with the community He has founded and even modeled on His cross. 
I've referred a couple times already in this, in this series so far to Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book called The Cost of Discipleship. Because the, the central section of that book, it's become a Christian classic now, but the central section of it is basically a verse-by-verse commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. A couple of copies on the resource table if you're interested. I think you'd really enjoy it. When Bonhoeffer gets to these verses, Matthew 5, 10 through 12, he gives us a wonderful summary, not just of Jesus' point in our text, but, but in a way, it's, it's a fitting summary of the whole study of the Beatitudes. I want to finish this morning just by reading you a, a, a longish section of what Bonhoeffer has to say. This is the point of our text this morning, about persecution, and it's really the point of the whole section of the Beatitudes. Here's what Bonhoeffer says. Here at the end of the Beatitudes, the question arises as to where in this world such a faith community actually finds a place. It's become clear that there's only one place for them, namely, the place where the poorest, the most tempted, the meekest of all may be found, at the cross on Golgotha. The faith community of the blessed is the community of the crucified. With him, they lost everything. And with him, they found everything. And now the word comes down from the cross. Blessed. Blessed. Bonhoeffer continues later. The reviling word, the deadly persecution, the evil slander... Seal the blessedness of the disciples in their communion with Jesus. Things can't go any other way than that the world unleashes its fury in in word and violence and defamation at those meek strangers. The The voice of these poor and meek is too threatening, too loud. Their suffering is too patient and quiet. In their poverty and suffering, this group of Jesus followers gives too strong a witness to the injustice of the world. That is fatal. While Jesus calls, blessed, blessed, the world shrieks, away, away with them. Yes, away. But where will they go? Into the kingdom of heaven. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. The poor will stand there in the joyous assembly. God's hand will wipe away the tears of estrangement from the eyes of the weeping. God feeds the hungry with the Lord's own supper. Wounded and martyred bodies will be transformed. And instead of the clothing of sin and penitence, they will wear the white robe of eternal righteousness. From that eternal joy, there comes a call to the community of disciples here under the cross. The call of Jesus Blessed, blessed. Father, we hear that call this morning from Jesus' words. They're really clear. Nothing about this is hard to understand. You've told us to expect to be persecuted. You've told us to welcome persecution when it comes. And now we ask you to help us to see in ourselves where we might be shrinking back 
from Jesus' values because we fear what cost it'll bring. And we pray that you would help us to have hearts so fixed on heaven, to have a kinship so close to your people who've gone before us that we don't fear. That we rejoice even when things are hard and costly. Shape us into this kind of people through each other and by your word we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.